3: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and uh, today we're actually bringing you a Vault episode to help get us through some some people being out of office here and there over the next couple of weeks. So today's episode originally published uh, April 29th, 2021, and it was on the Sargassum seaweed.
3: That's right. This is a fun episode full of uh, fantastic creatures and a wonderful environment. And also a few uh, allusions to a movie we discussed on Weird House Cinema, Zat, also known as the Bloodwaters of Dr. Z. So if you're interested in that Weird House Cinema episode, you'll find that uh, in the back catalog.
1: Now, to lay things out for you, I think we, we do have a, uh, a fresh original episode coming up for you on Thursday of this week. Uh, then we'll have a few more vaults for you the week after that, but then we should be back with all new things once again. Right. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to go into the wettest of the woods, the saltiest of the woods. Uh, today, the woods are salty, dark, and deep. And, and we have promises to keep and miles to float before we sleep uh, because we are going to be looking at a uh, sort of jungle in the ocean. That's right. That's right.
3: Uh, The ocean, Uh, it hosts quite a mix of environments from rich coral reefs to desolate deep sea wastes, from sunlit shallows to hydrothermal vent heated depths. Uh, Marine organisms, of course, face numerous challenges, but the most basic demands boil down to, you know, how not to end, how not to die, how to, uh, to prolong its era, to quote, uh, waiting for the barbarians. Uh, but this is especially true if you're small or you're a young organism. You're going to need food and you're going to need shelter. Uh, and there's always going to be something trying to eat you. And for a number of organisms, uh, this is provided by sargassum, a, a genus of brown seaweed of sometimes brown, sometimes described as brown and orange, um, as we'll discuss, there are a number of different species here. Uh, but uh, sargassum thrives abundantly in the ocean. It floats free of the ocean floor, provides a buoyant, free-floating environment that travels on the tides and offers food, refuge, breeding grounds, nurseries, hunting grounds, etc., for a wide variety of organisms. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the sargassum organisms uh, themselves, the environment that they offer, some of its benefactors, and also the problems posed by the so-called Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt.
1: Yeah, and that last point is interesting because I will say uh, when you think of, of seaweed, you think of the macroalgae world, you don't usually think of it as something that is... Uh, particularly uh, economically devastating or 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 even economically all that significant but uh, but that is, that is not the case for sargassum.
3: Yeah, as well it's 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 an interesting topic to, to explore because in its present form it kind of cuts both ways. It's both vitally important. To, uh, to so many organisms and a number of organisms that are then important to us, you know, various um, uh, you know, marine uh, species that we depend on, various fish and so forth. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, in an environment that is uh, increasingly out of balance, uh, it also poses a threat and it can uh, pose
1: quite a nuisance. Uh, so we'll get into all that. So what got you thinking about sargassum for today, Rob?
3: Well, it, uh, it's because tomorrow's episode of Weird House Cinema will entail sargassum and casual mention of um, a few of the creatures, one creature in particular that calls it home. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll try to save all of that for uh, tomorrow's episode. But uh, but yeah, that was probably the, the first place I heard of
1: sargassum, the weed of deceit. I was wondering if we should announce the movie, but maybe we should just make everyone wait to find out. They're going to be wondering, wait, is it a Jaws clone where it's a big raft of seaweed instead of a shark? Is it like the Blair Witch Project, but instead of getting lost in the woods of Virginia or wherever it is, you get lost in the woods of the ocean of the Sargasso Sea? Well, the, the truth will just suddenly strike out at them,
3: and there'll be nothing they can do about it. Uh, so, so tune in uh, tomorrow. Uh, if you wish for that. Uh, but, but for this episode, we're going to focus on, uh, first, on, on sargassum, the, the organism. So, sargassum glimpsed in the ocean or on the beach, it might just look like a big heap of brown mess. But upon closer uh, look, you'll notice that it's composed of branches, leafy bits, and what look like plump berries. Uh, but they're not berries. So don't, don't pick them. Um, I mean, I guess you could pick them, but uh, what they are actually are uh, pneumatocysts. These are air bubbles um, uh, that are part of the organism uh, held in, you know,
1: in, in these little cysts that help it excel at floating around. Right, because, of course, there are different types of seaweed, and some types of seaweed uh, spend their life, you know, submerged in the water, and they might be, say, anchored down by a, a type of organ known as a holdfast that is somewhat analogous to, like, the root ball of a tree that holds it, uh, except in the case of seaweed, it would hold clumps of seaweed to the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. Though not entirely analogous, I mean, for many reasons, one of which is that, uh, is that uh, the seaweed that we're talking about today is technically not even a plant. It is a type of macroalgae. Which we'll explain more about. But in the case of sargassum, uh, there are types of sargassum that are free floating organisms that spend much or all of their lives just floating on top of the water to have good access to sunlight, of course, which they need in order to make their food to survive. But they've got to just sit there and float on the top. And they're actually not even anchored to the bottom at all. They just float out in the open ocean.
3: And I do just want to stress again that the genus is Sargassum, and there are, I I believe, about 150 species um, of Sargassum. Uh, The 150 number, I got that from the Ocean Foundation, though curiously, I saw some higher numbers out there as well. I don't know if those were accurate.
1: I'm sticking with the 150. Right. So there are different kinds that you'll find, uh, especially in different parts of the oceans around the world. Right. Uh, and we'll be talking about some key ones, though, that are um, the most abundant, or at least in the, uh, in the the part of the world that we're going to be discussing here. So as I mentioned, sargassum is a brown macroalgae, so it is different than plants. And how exactly is is it different than plants? Yeah,
3: I think this is also important to stress, because if you don't think much about seaweed, uh, you might just just assume, well, all right, it's some sort of plant that grows in the water. Um, And and I think that you might be reasonable to make that assumption just based on its physical appearance and and certainly the word seaweed. Um, Weeds are plants, yeah. Yeah, and and seaweed (laughs) is also used informally a lot of times to describe both uh, algae and some plant um, organisms. But uh, algae are protists, meaning they are uh, uh, eukaryotic organisms which are not animals. Animals, plants, or fungi. Um, so, land plants, for their part, they likely uh, derived from freshwater algae about 500 million years ago. And algae uh, is, of course, when we look at the, just the, the root of the word, um, they're synonymous with seaweed, as alga
1: is the Latin for seaweed. Okay, so if you if you just think about algae, like the most, uh, I, I would say if I was to go on my own personal life experience, when I hear the word algae by itself, what I tend to think of is kind of green pond scum, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of a uh, very uh, like a something floating on top of a stagnant freshwater uh, body, like a pond or a lake. That is uh, made of tiny little fibers that just kind of clump together. It doesn't have any recognizable macro structures the way larger plants like uh, like flowers or trees would. But that is not true of all kinds of algae. The, these macroalgae that we see in these uh, types of seaweed, they have more complex structures that are more like the structures of land plants. So they might have something that is akin to the stalk of a land plant and something that is akin to the leaves. In the these case they would be algal fronds.
3: Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Again, they they look very plant-like. You can easily look at them and say, "Oh, there are the leaves. There are the berries." But uh, uh, at at any rate, uh, again, 150 different species of uh, of sargassum. uh, Though we're generally going to be talking about specific dominant species within given regions. For instance, the two varieties found most often in the Caribbean are uh, sargassum natans and sargassum fluitans. I don't think it'll be necessary to remember that, but just know that again, we're gonna we're probably going to refer to Uh, sargassum a lot just generally but we're going to ultimately be dealing with specific species that are dominant within a given region so sargassum reproduces asexually through fragmentation a form of asexual reproduction in which parents split into fragments and those fragments then become adults and uh, furthermore uh, the uh, the caribbean sargassum species uh, uh, in particular and some of these other varieties that are important are uh, holopelagic that means that they they not only float freely on the ocean uh, but they also reproduce vegetatively on the high seas. So they're they're completely in international waters. You know, they're they're they they're a monkey knife fight uh, that the land has no control over.
1: <laughs> so, th- yeah, but that would mean that they don't they can do their whole life cycle without like anchoring to the bottom at any point or returning to shore or anything like that.
3: Right. And that's going to that's going to become important later on. It, get, it really gets into ultimately the idea of sargassum being the weed of deceit. So it grows abundantly in the ocean where it forms vast floating rafts, as it's sometimes called, though um, I, I don't think these are rafts in the sense that you could um, you know, be a shipwrecked sailor at sea and climb on top of it or hoist a sail on it, uh, but essentially just big rafts, big floating chunks of, uh, of, of the sargassum all tangled together, stretching in some cases for miles. And these form in areas of converging surface currents. Uh, and in doing so, they create a vital environment, like we alluded to earlier. But on top of the environment, uh, the organism itself provides food. According to the Ocean Foundation, sargassum contributes an estimated 60 percent of the total primary production in the upper one meter of the water column.
1: Okay, so that would refer to, uh, like different, different stages of the food chain. So you've got the primary producers that are familiar to us. These are generally photosynthesizing organisms like, like plants on land, you know, Mm -hmm. that absorb sunlight to power the chemical reactions that make their bodies. And then you've got the, the secondary uh, uh, characters on the food chain that eat the, the primary producers, you know, that, that eat plants to survive. The same thing is true in the ocean. So you've got these primary producers that are uh, at least near the top of the water column are going to be basing their, their energy cycle on sunlight to, to produce these molecules that make up their body that, that in turn are eaten by other organisms that are the sort of uh, the secondary organisms in that food chain.
3: Yeah, it's it's like you said at the very beginning. Uh, this is the forest that we're discussing. Like uh, in, in a way, don't think of the ocean itself as the forest. Think of the think of the sargassum; these gra- these rafts of sargassum as the forest, because the ocean, as we've discussed in the show before, the ocean can be a wasteland. The ocean can be a desert, and um, and in that desert, the sargassum can be the oasis. Um, it serves as a place of refuge for various creatures, as well as again breeding grounds nurseries in fact it 's the primary nursery for a number of important to human uh, to humans, uh, especially fish species like the mai mai. And given all of this activity that's going on at the various creatures that call it home, sometimes exclusively uh, their home, it's also prime stalking zone for many marine predators. So both sargasm predators who live there and have evolved to thrive in its environment, but also general marine apex predators that are drawn in by the um, by by the riches there, by the biodiversity. Uh, Let's see, a few other just sort of general um, uh, facts about uh, sargassum. Uh, It can survive wide temperature and salinity variances. And after about a year, those pneumaticists that help it to remain buoyant, uh, they they lose their buoyancy and bits of sargassum will then sink to the seafloor, where it'll uh, actually end up providing carbon for various deep sea creatures. So it's not only an important energy source for the sunlit shallow regions of the sea, but for the dark depths as well. I guess serving as kind of like that that nutrient uh, rainfall uh, that we've talked about before that uh, rains upon the deep. And indeed, when it washes up on the shore, uh, I guess we, for, for the most part we're talking about if it's washing up in manageable quantities, um, it can actually nourish beaches. Uh, it can prevent sand from blowing away. Uh, and uh, when it washes up, it also serves as a food source for various coastal species. Um, and not only is it generally not harmful to humans, it's actually edible. More on that in a bit. Uh, there are also possible biofuel and pharmaceutical possibilities for sargassum um we'll get into some of the drawbacks later on but but one of the interesting things here is that like the idea of just sargassum piling up on the beach again in manageable quantities it does bring to mind that sort of um contest uh, that um uh, disagreement at times over what constitutes the beach or what the beach should look like you know Mm -hmm. should there be anything on the beach other than um human strolling and enjoying their vacation, you know, uh, you know, some of the some of the really beautiful beaches out there, a lot of times they are manicured. You know? Things like seaweed are collected uh, regularly in order to have that sort of Hollywood beach presented. Uh, and in many cases, there's an argument to me, May, that no, debris would be on the beach naturally. And it in the right quantities, it can be
1: important to keeping the, the sand from washing away, keeping the beach from eroding, et cetera. I can see the point of view that would say I'm okay with a beach that has natural debris, but not unmanageable amounts of natural debris or artificial debris. I mean, you, you certainly, you know, you don't want too many beer cans. Uh, that's going to kind of ruin your beach experience. Yeah, nobody wants to step on a beer can on the beach. But likewise, nobody really wants to have to walk over a 10-foot-high mound of sargassum like dead, rotting seaweed. Right, right.
3: Now – um we're going to be getting into the the history of, of humanity's awareness and understanding of sargassum uh, here. And the first bit I want to share is that, uh, you know, certainly early sailors described sargassum mats. And uh, one individual in particular, Christopher Columbus. Uh, huh. This was in 1492 uh, when abundant sargassum fooled Columbus into thinking he was approaching land. And I I couldn't find anything that really... Define this for me. I don't know if you uh, did, Joe, but I assume this is what the, the term the weed of deceit refers to. The idea mm-hmm. that you might encounter sargassum mats out at sea and you could make the same error that Columbus uh, made and think, oh, well, look at all this seaweed. Uh, there's a, it's thick. It's everywhere. We must be really close to land at
1: this point. Sure. Uh, I don't know that that's where the name comes from, but that makes sense. Yeah. So
3: on September 16th, uh, Columbus wrote, and this is of course translated, uh, "quote We have begun to see large patches of yellowish green weed, which seems to have been torn away from some island or reef. I know better because I make the mainland to be farther on. And then on September 17th, I saw a great deal of weed today from rocks that lie to the west. I take this to mean we are near land. The weed resembles a grass, except that it has long stalks and shoots and is loaded with fruit." Like the like the mastic tree. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess on the on September 16th, it sounds like he was like, nope, you can't fool me. We're not that close to land.
1: But on September 17th, he said, nope, we are close to land. Look at all this seaweed. I had to look up what the mastic tree is because I didn't know. But it's the uh, but it's known as pistachia lentiscus.
3: Ah, yeah, I looked up a picture of it as well. And I do see some uh, some prominent little round fruits berries I bet, yeah, the little berries that uh, I assume that's that's what he was uh, comparing to the what what are actually pneumaticists,
1: yeah, as we mentioned earlier the the pneumaticists are these little tiny berry shaped gas bladders that help the uh the the seaweed float, but in this case, yeah, it looks kind of like these berries in a tree that would have been familiar to Columbus, I think the uh looking at the the mastic tree apparently is useful for its resin.
2: Mm-hmm. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: So a special note is the Sargasso Sea. This is a truly vast patch of sargassum. Uh, According to the Ocean Foundation, the Sargasso Sea is sometimes referred to as the Atlantic Golden Rainforest. Uh, And the islands, quote unquote, uh, in the Sargasso Sea can be acres across, while the regions they occupy can stretch for miles.
1: Right now, the Sargasso Sea is interesting because it is the only real sea in the world that doesn't have any land boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sargasso Sea is a sea within an ocean. It's uh, this patch in the middle of the Northern Atlantic. Basically, it's just a a large patch. If you were to look at the eastern coast of the United States, and uh, you know, and the Caribbean, maybe with the bottom edge down around like Cuba and uh, and, and Puerto Rico, and then uh, going up a along the the coast of North America up towards uh, Newfoundland and then you just extend out east from there there's this big patch in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean which is known as the Sargasso Sea now uh, we should be clear that it is not like blanket covered in sargassum seaweed but there are it is known for having large rafts of sargassum seaweed within it and the Sargasso Sea is interesting in a number of ways. One thing about it is it's known for having uh for being a place where ships can easily become becalmed and this is a a uh, a risk that people who are not very familiar with sea voyages might not think about uh, very often, but back in the days of sailing, one thing that was really dangerous is if the winds die down and you Mm -hmm. can't sail, you know, there's nothing to propel your ship in the direction where it needs to go. Uh, all throughout the, the Atlantic around the Sargasso Sea, there tend to be these wind currents, you know, there, there are winds that'll blow you, uh, that'll blow you east to west down from the, from the coast of Africa down towards, uh, towards the Caribbean and toward the northern coast of South America. And then there are winds and, and currents in the ocean that lead up north along the east coast of North America. And then if you go up north from there, there are winds and currents that will lead you back toward the east from the west. So essentially, you create this Box in the middle of the North Atlantic that is surrounded by currents that go in a circle around it, and this is an, often known as the North Atlantic Gyre.
3: Uh, now, anyone who's ever watched uh, you know any number of, of sailing movies or TV shows or any TV show that includes like a a, a a voyage by sail across the ocean, this is a this is almost a standard bottle episode right here, uh, where where suddenly the ship is uh, in is in a, is in a region where there's just no no wind at all nothing to propel them and everybody just sits around and gets like superstitious and uh, and a little bit crazy until the wind picks
1: back up and saves everybody Right, and you can imagine, like if you actually were traveling across the Atlantic and you didn't know what you were what you were going to see or what was going to be out there. Maybe you'd heard some tales of sea monsters. Who knows? You get into an area where there is less wind than you're used to. Than when you traveled into the area, you are suddenly becalmed. It becomes hard to travel, and you're just kind of stuck there in the water. And then you start seeing these weird rafts floating around mm-hmm. in the middle of the ocean toward you. I, I can imagine that's pretty odd. Yeah. And in fact, we maybe don't have to imagine because there are some historical sources that that may well be referring to this. I guess it's debatable whether they're referring to this or something else. But uh, I wanted to look at the question: How long has the Sargasso Sea been written about? Uh, it gets its current name from Portuguese sailors, I believe, of like you know the the early modern period, or actually, I think before that, from like the uh, the fifteenth century. Uh, but but I was looking around to see how far back written accounts of the Sargasso Sea go, and I found an interesting, possibly applicable bit of history in a book by the British archaeologist and Oxford professor Sir Barry Cunliffe. Uh, and the book is called On the Ocean, the Mediterranean and Atlantic from Prehistory to AD 1500 from Oxford University Press in 2017. And this is in a chapter where Cunliffe is writing about records of exploration west of the Pillars of Heracles. So the Pillars of Heracles uh, today are understood to refer to the Strait of Gibraltar, that gap between uh, between Morocco and the Iberian Peninsula, where you can just uh, go through this narrow passage to get out of the Mediterranean Sea and into the broad Atlantic Ocean. And so he's writing about the exploration beyond this point out to the West uh, by the ancient cultures of North Africa, Europe, and Central Asia. And uh, for for most of these cultures – The Mediterranean Sea was, of course, their bread and butter. I mean, the sea, even the Mediterranean Sea has, has plenty of dangers and mysteries to it. But sea voyages within this region were, you know, were well understood for, for trade and, and exploration and warfare and fishing and all that. Uh, but sea voyages west into the Atlantic Ocean are another story. And, the, and you, so you get plenty of tales in, say, uh, Greek thought and Greek mythology about uh, islands that maybe lay out to the west of, of the Pillars of Hercules, way out there in the ocean that, that is uh, mostly unexplored by your people. Most of the early explorers who passed west of Gibraltar did so in order to travel along the coast to the north or south. So this would be traveling up along the coast of the Iberian Peninsula uh, to form the, these ports uh, along uh, places like Cadiz that became a Phoenician port or south along the coast of Africa. Uh, the Phoenicians and the Greeks did this to various extents. Uh, but the vast and presumably mostly empty Atlantic Ocean was uh, not not among everybody, but widely assumed in ancient times to be a place of mystery and danger, especially by Greek authors. And Cunliffe gives the example of the ancient Greek poet Pindar, who was writing in the early 5th century BCE. Uh, and so to quote from Cunliffe here, Describing the pillars of Heracles, situated at the western extremity of the known world far from home, he advises, quote, what lies beyond cannot be trodden by the wise or the unwise. One cannot cross from Gadir towards the dark West, turn again the sails towards the dry land of Europe. Mm, the dark West. Yeah. I mean, this vast stormy ocean, you you don't know if, you know, you travel out on it, like, would you, would you even reach land if you kept sailing? I mean, it was mm-hmm. not known. However, Cunliffe writes that Phoenician sailors were more adventurous in general in pushing westward uh, and about Uh, Around the year 600 BCE, a Phoenician expedition sponsored by the pharaoh Necho II had uh, been reported to have circumnavigated Africa. And though we don't have the original sources for the account that I'm about to describe, there are later Roman quotations of the accounts of Phoenician sailors possibly pushing further west into the Atlantic in exploration. And one of these notable sailors was a Carthaginian navigator named Himilco, uh, that's H-I-M-I-L-C-O, who lived probably sometime in the 5th century BCE. Uh, now, the Carthaginians were an ancient civilization that was based along the coast of North Africa. I think their, their capital was in modern-day Tunisia but who expanded to much of the ancient Mediterranean. And then here I'm going to read from Cunliffe as he introduces and quotes another ancient source for, for knowledge about Himilco. So Himilco, quote, whose report, published long ago in the secret annals of the Carthaginians, is selectively quoted in a grossly pretentious poem compiled by a Roman administrator, Rufus Festus Avienus, in the 4th century AD. A few lines of his Ora Maritima* will suffice to give the flavor. And then uh, this quotes lines 375 to 384. To the west of these pillars, Himilko reports that the swell is boundless. The sea extends widely. The salt water streaks forth. No one has approached these waters. No one has brought his keel into that sea because there are no propelling breezes at sea, and no breath of heaven's air aids the ship. Hence, because the mist cloaks the air with a kind of garment, a cloud always holds the swell and persists throughout the humid day. Hmm. And so that's describing uh possibly some of the uh the becalmed area of the North Atlantic with like within the gyre region that we talked about before, you know, surrounded by the currents but is very uh often very still in that middle area that uh, overlaps with the Sargasso Sea. Uh, but then Cunliffe goes on to describe further how Avienus quotes from Himilco to describe his voyage. Uh, Cunliffe writes, elsewhere he talks of monsters of the deep and beasts who swim amid the slow and sluggish crawling ships. And again, great fear of monsters stalks the deep. When the wind falls, the sluggish liquid of the lazy sea is at a standstill, while thick seaweed often tops the sea, and the tide is hindered by the marshy rack. Mm -hmm. The marshy rack. Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, Cunliffe also says, Himilco was evidently not enamored of his encounter with the ocean. Perhaps perhaps his vessel was drawn south into the doldrums and reached the Sargasso Sea, as some commentators have suggested— Or perhaps he reported in this dispiriting way simply to aggrandize his own achievement and to deter others. Another possibility is that his original report was embroidered by Avienus. Uh, So we don't know exactly what he's describing here and if what he's describing is real, especially since we're only getting it quoted by a secondary source and we Mm -hmm. don't have the original source. But, of course, it is true there's the danger of the doldrums, the calm part of the Atlantic where you won't won't have winds to propel your your sails Uh, so you can very well get trapped there. That could well overlap with large stretches of seaweed, the Sargassum seaweed, that you would find in the Sargasso Sea. So one possible interpretation of what we're getting here is that this ancient Carthaginian sailor, Himilco, actually sailed to the Sargasso Sea, survived, returned to Carthage eventually, and you know lived to tell the tale. Uh, but again, it's worth stressing that modern some modern scholars are, are doubtful. It's hard to know for sure. But some details line up if they're accurate. You get these reports about the marshy rack of seaweed coinciding with the doldrums. It, it lines up in a kind of interesting way. And then finally, of course, the mention of sea monsters, right? The, yes. I wonder if it's possible to mistake the shadow of a huge floating raft of sargassum for a sea monster stalking the deep. Again, I don't know, but it strikes me as possible.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, once you get into discussing sea monsters, of course, as we've uh, we've explored on the show before, especially looking at the work of uh, was it Chet Van Duser. Um, Yeah, that's right. On sea monsters. Uh, I I believe he pointed out in his book that, you know, at times, sea monsters are a manifestation of, um, uh, certainly, of of second- and third-hand accounts of, of actual organisms. Other times they're products of the mind. Sometimes they're products of, of economic or political forces. So there are mm-hmm. a whole host of reasons uh, to uh, to speak the word of the, the, the name of the sea monster. But the, certainly, the yeah, the doldrums uh, that seem to be uh, described here and then the uh, the, 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 the rack, the muck, uh, the, the seaweed here, this does sound a lot like the descriptions, modern descriptions of the Sargasso Sea.
1: Oh, and sorry. There's one thing I didn't clarify, but just to avoid confusion, because it's not a common word, I had to look this up. Rack here in this quotation is spelled with W W R A C K, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What is that referring to? Is that like referring to like a like a shipwreck? Because rack sometimes is a, an alternate spelling of wreck or wreckage. Uh-huh. But also, I, I looked it up, and apparently, it is also just a word sometimes used to refer to a mass of seaweed, like marine huh. vegetation. Could be. Oh, there is a rack with a W.
3: Yeah. Okay. Well, sometimes it, uh, I wasn't familiar with the, the precise definition, but I totally understood it in the context yeah. of the sentence. It's like, ah, oh, look at this rack. There's no getting <laughs> through it. So, uh, so certainly you can imagine that the rack would not be a great place to find yourself as a, a human sailor, certainly in, uh, in ancient times. But of course, uh, the rack, is home to a great many organisms, as we've already uh, alluded to here. So, uh, for, for one thing, you have um, you have various um, micro and macro um, epiphytes. Uh, these are organisms that grow on the surface of a plant and derives uh, derives its moisture and nutrients from the air, rain, and water. Uh, so you have that's those sorts of organisms growing there. You have fungi. You have more than a hundred species of invertebrates. That are known to uh, uh, to to live within the sargassum. Over a hundred species of fish, four species of turtle. Uh, again, and it kind of spirals out because once you have a certain amount of um, of life uh, you know, fostered within the sargassum, it's going to attract other things as well. So you'll see things like sharks showing up, etc. So we are not going to attempt to cover everything that lives in the sargassum, uh, but. We are going to talk about some of the standouts because there are some really fun, really interesting, really weird organisms uh, that call the rack home. Uh, and the first of which I want to talk about is the sargassum fish, also known as the sargassum frogfish.
1: Now, is this the one that you lured me into this episode with? Because the, the first thing that I became aware of when you were getting interested in sargassum was was that you came to me and you said, Joe, there is a fish with hands.
3: Yes, yes. This would, be, uh, this would be the sargassum frogfish. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll, and I'll e- explain what I mean by, by hands. They're not quite hands, but they are enough like they're, hands that you're hands. permitted to get excited. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, it's probably the most famous sargassum denizen. It's the, the species uh, Histrio histrio, a frogfish of the family uh, Atenonaridae, and it's the only species of its genus. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll describe them here, uh, but also feel free to look up images or video. I mean, there's nothing quite like seeing video of these uh, these creatures. I think there's some wonderful National Geographic footage, uh, but also the the Weird House Cinema Selection uh, for tomorrow. Uh, also, will feature some actual footage of this creature right at the top. Um, so, the uh, the sargassum fish grows to around 20 centimeters in length, so about 7.8 inches. And I, I should, I guess, I should say first of all, they generally have this appearance uh, that you'll find with other frogfish, um, and, uh, and 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 uh, they're related to uh, to the anglerfish of the deep. Uh, so yeah, they have these upturned mouths uh which kind of give them kind of this uh, this frowny face look this kind of froggy uh, appearance and uh and, and so that that's the the first thing to, to drive home about them so they have that that kind of body that i think a number of you can can uh, imagine but I,
1: big, I sometimes sort
3: of think of it as the drawbridge jaw yes yes that's a good way of describing it drawbridge jaw and of course like like uh, pretty much all fish you know they're, they're going to consume by by lunging and inhaling uh you know pulling their uh, their prey rapidly into their mouth um they're master these particular fish though, uh, uh the sargassum fish are masters of camouflage, at least within the sargassum environment, because they've adapted to physically look like the sargassum, uh complete with fleshy appendages that look like weed. I've seen some of the some of the appendages have even been compared to organisms that live within the weed. Um so they just they they just they look like they're just a part of the environment. You'll see images or even footage sometimes of the sargassum fish hiding in the seaweed, and you really cannot pick them out with a human eye.
1: I think at some point I watched a documentary or part of a documentary that had some of these in it. And it was one of those like, uh, you know, trick shots where they show you the shot. And then it's like, there are three sargassum fish in the <laughs> shot and you can't see them at all. And then it has to like circle them or zoom in on them yes. or something.
3: Yep. Yeah. I think I've seen the same one. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's not just their physical structure and initial coloration. The other cool thing about them is they can further adjust their coloration from dark browns and greens to light browns and greens to complete the illusion, to, to fine tune it so that they blend in, you know, seemingly completely. Um, and they can do this quite rapidly as well. This is important for the sargassum fish because of, again, it is a voracious hunter, but also it's the jungle baby. So, uh, you know, they, they're also, uh, they also, also also have to be on guard against other predators, so it also helps protect them. Now they uh, let's get to the hands, uh, if you will. Uh, yeah. So get Their, the their pelvic fins, uh, you know, the the fins up front. They have nine to eleven rays uh, in, uh, in them, and they're stalked, essentially forming. What act like claws? Basically, they can use these things again. They they look like claws. They look like fish claws and they can use these to grip objects and they use these to clamber over and through the seaweed.
1: Okay, so they can use them to grip objects, not in the sense of like uh, like our fingers where you would manipulate objects freely, but they can grip things in the sense of like uh, sort of uh, pushing against surfaces. Right, yeah.
3: They're not going to be able to use an iPhone. They can't play the piano uh, worth a darn. But <laughs> but they can use these appendages, yeah, to sort of grip and push through things, which is going to be vitally important uh, when you're hanging out in the sargassum.
1: They're like little graboid spines.
3: yeah. So they're really cool. Definitely look up. I mean, they're beyond cool. They're a little creepy looking. Uh, I I highly recommend checking them out. Um, so so obviously the adults live in the mats and their eggs are placed there as well. But the larvae develop in the water columns between 50 and 600 meters deep. Um, and you might think, well, the, I guess the sargassum environment then is just no place for, for kids, right? Um, and this is, this is certainly the case, especially since the sargassum fish is more than happy to eat them as well. So they're in, they're not only incredibly voracious, but they're notorious cannibals. I was reading about some of the the studies where they've um, they've caught sargassum fish and they've they've looked inside at their bellies and they'll find like multiple juveniles you know they'll find some <laughs> juveniles and they just they'll just just gobble them up delicious yeah so uh, again just a fabulous fish just it's everything about it is uh, is 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 both beautiful and frightening uh in in just the right proportions now, they're not the only, um, creature that, uh, that, that, lives there, uh, again, and they're not the only creature that, that takes, uh, sargassum as part of its, uh, you know, official or unofficial name. For instance, there's the sargassum pipefish. This is a species of pipefish that makes its home in the sargassum mats. Uh, and like all pipefish and seahorses, the male carries the egg. Um, they're just into these elongated, um, you know, beautiful fish with that kind of signature, uh, seahorsey head. Now, um, just briefly, uh, a couple of other organisms. Well, first, in general, I should say that, that uh, the Sargasso Sea, in particular, is a spawning site for uh, various eels, uh, including threatened and endangered eels. Uh, but speaking of decapods, there is also uh, worth uh, our consideration the Sargassum Swimming Crab, mm. or uh, Portunus sae. Uh This is... Uh, just one variety of crab you'll find in sargassum mats, but it's an impressive one and a species adapted to blend into the environment. They have an orange-brown colorization that apparently matches up with the sargassum pretty well. And as the name implies, they're more adapted for swimming than walking. Uh, the fourth pair of legs are modified into paddle-like structures. Now, uh, crabs, of, of course, are noted for uh, walking uh, sideways, so you might wonder, how does it swim? Well, they tend to swim sideways Ways as well, uh, and apparently they're quite fast. They depend on a mix of active and passive hunting. So they'll they'll actively chase after something again sideways uh, to catch it, but they'll also uh, fall back on the, that that uh, sort of ambush hunting within the jungle of the sargassum.
1: Mm, Yeah. Now, in addition to these organisms that spend all or most of their lives in the sargassum, there are also organisms that use sargassum as a sort of like uh, a stepping stone during their migration patterns. Uh, One example that's often referenced would be uh, young sea turtles.
3: Yeah, and I've also heard that it's important to even like migratory bird species. Again, it's, it's, it's an oasis in the wastes, an oasis in the desert of the sea.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love—
0: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
3: So now earlier we, we alluded to the sargassum being not not only this, this bountiful environment, but also potentially a problem. Uh, a problem For humans and sort of human likes and dislikes concerning beaches, but also uh, just for the environment as a whole, Uh, as the uh, Ocean Foundation points out, it's ecologically important, the sargassum, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have some downsides, especially when you're dealing with large volumes.
1: Right. And this is something that's become especially uh, a problem within just the last decade or so. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, it can really be dated to a year in particular from what, from everything we've been reading, uh, for, to the year 2011, starting around 2011, something started happening with Sargassum in the Atlantic Ocean where there was a, a sudden increase that has gone on in many years since then of, of Sargassum inundations where beaches and shorelines along areas in the Caribbean along the coast of Florida along places in the the coast of uh, the northern coast of South America would just be caked with sargassum like the just mounds and mounds of seaweed piling up to the point that it in in some cases would make the shores unusable for what humans have been using them for usually in in, in the years beforehand
3: yeah if uh, if any of you out there are are snorkelers or are um you know related to or friends with snorkeling enthusiasts then you've you've probably heard about the, the blight of sargassum about the disappointment of of say you know reaching a, a popular snorkeling area and finding that there's just sargassum everywhere um you know so in in particular one of the things that the ocean foundation points out is you know, huge rafts of it can actually uh, smother other seagrasses and even coral reefs um you know Granted, coral reefs are facing uh, a number of problems. Um, uh, you know, and, are, and, and, uh, and we've gone into that in past episodes. But but certainly, it, it, this could disrupt your ability to even properly view them as a as a tourist in the ocean, as a uh, as a snorkeler, um, you know, out there trying to uh, to observe this natural habitat. Uh, it can also uh, th- this is interesting. This, this is brought up as well. Apparently, sargassum can serve as a means of transport for invasive species, mm-hmm. though um, I-, I honestly wonder if this at all compares to human-enabled invasive species transport. It seems like um, it almost wouldn't matter compared to what humans can and have done, uh, you know, importing species like the lionfish into regions that, um, that, uh, that are not balanced enough to, uh, to contain them.
1: Well, yes, but I, I would also say that there. I think there is at least a strong likelihood that human behavior is a major contributor to these the, these new buildups of sargassum yes. in the last decade.
3: Yeah, and we'll and we'll get into into more of that in just a second. Um, just a few more points here uh, that the Ocean Foundation made. Uh, sargassum, of course, can prevent boats and fishermen from setting out to sea. It can also prevent sea turtles from making it. Uh, to nest in these cases as well so uh, you know uh, again you have it massing up on the beach uh, in particular if it's um, you know a certain amount of that is arguably good for the beach but if you have too much of it yeah it's going to actually interfere potentially in a sea turtle's ability to come on shore lay the eggs and then have the hatchlings be able to properly uh, get back out to sea again in, in an appropriate amount of time and if it masses on the beach, the sargassum, it uh, if it's not removed in time, it can produce hydrogen sulfide, uh, which can have a major uh, can have major detrimental effects on coastal ecosystems.
1: Yeah, I mean, it can have all kinds of negative effects on the wildlife itself. I mean, one would be like if it doesn't reach the beach, if you're just talking about it still being in the water, big blooms of algal organisms in the water can have downstream effects when the blooms eventually die and then there's all of this dead decomposing material in the water and then the decomposition of that Mm. material ends up robbing the water of dissolved oxygen, which in turn leads to these big fish die-offs and die-offs of other organisms because there's not enough oxygen in the water for them to breathe.
3: Yeah, and also all that decomposition in the water can promote harmful blooms of bacteria and other microbes. I I guess the way to, to, to think think of it is it's basically like spiraling imbalance in the ecosystem and uh, and and uh, it's uh, it's place in this uh, this 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 cascade of imbalance now to, to get kind of a a, a, I guess sort of a, a bird's eye or in, I guess satellite eye uh, view of things. Um, I found this pretty helpful. I was looking at a July 2019 article from NASA Goddard. They utilize the satellite images to observe the the Great Atlantic uh, Sargassum Belt. Uh, So at at this point, based on simulations, they confirmed that its shape was due to ocean currents and that it can grow large enough uh, so as to blanket the surface of the tropical Atlantic from the west coast of Africa to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Major blooms have occurred in every year between 2011 and 2018. Again, uh, this was a July 2019 article, so that's as far up as it went at the time, Uh, with the exception of 2013. Which this was apparently, uh, this year was impacted by unusually low seed populations during the winter. But otherwise, 2011 onward, it's been Sargassum season. Prior to 2011, most of the free-floating sargassum in the ocean was primarily found in patches around the Gulf of Mexico and the Sargasso Sea. But then something changed. Something uh, seemingly in the biochemistry of the ocean. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, p- people were asking a lot of questions about climate change, uh, and, and ultimately, I guess the reality is is complicated. But basically, yes, as pointed out by Dr. Paula uh, Bontempi of NASA's Ocean Biology and Biogeochemistry. Program, The ocean's biochemistry is changing due to a mix of natural and human forces, and it seems to be leading to an ecosystem shift with important implications for marine life and human life, since we depend on many of the species in question and live in in many of the environments that are impacted. Uh, Climate change is certainly a key aspect of this as it impacts precipitation and ocean circulation. uh, But Increased water temperatures specifically don't seem to be the cause. It's these other causes. But uh, again, uh, climate change is very much part of the issue. I don't want to make it sound like it's not.
1: Yeah, if you, re- if you want to read more in depth about this research, there's a really good article in The Atlantic by Ed Yong from July yes. 2019 called Why Waves of Seaweed Have Been Smothering Caribbean Beaches. Uh, again, that's from July 2019 by Ed Yong. Uh, that's worth looking up, and it gets into a lot of the, the difficulty and uncertainty in trying to figure out exactly what the underlying factors leading to this change that we first saw in the year 2011 was uh, establishing this, this huge belt of, of sargassum that was not there previously. And, and But we want to be very clear, this Atlantic sargassum belt is different from the sargassum in the Sargasso Sea. The Sargasso Sea is further north in the North Atlantic off the east coast of, uh, of like the United States, whereas this would be something that stretches more between Brazil and Africa. Uh, in fact, one of the things that uh, Ed Yong writes about in this article was the, this—the very idea of the satellite photos that you were talking about. That uh, one of the fortunate things uh, for studying sargassum blooms on the large scale is that sargassum reflects more infrared light than the seawater around it. So, mm-hmm. uh, when you look down with satellites, sargassum patches can appear as hot spots in the ocean that can be seen from space. Uh, Young cites uh, uh, the re- a researcher named Jim Gower of the Fisheries and Oceans Canada uh, for for doing this uh, satellite research. Uh, But yeah, the the satellite photos found that the bloom really began in April of 2011, which correlates with, you know, these times when these pileups on the beaches, the sargassum inundations really started becoming a problem uh, that people noticed. Uh, But they started noticing the blooms off the coast of Brazil in the satellite images from 2011 and then Young also points to research uh, by someone named uh, Ming-Chi Wang from the University of South Florida, who, uh, along with her colleagues, they've basically established that, yeah, this bloom is just going to be an ongoing yearly thing mm. now, uh, that, that it, it's coming and it's probably not going to stop. Though one of the interesting things this article gets into is a delay between the proximate causes that are likely leading to the blooms, and then when the blooms show up within you know wh- what we can see with our satellites or what's piling up on our beaches, uh, because uh, a couple of the factors that have been identified as likely candidates leading to these blooms, one is um, is water being discharged from the Amazon River, you know, so mm-hmm. coming out of South America. Um, And uh, this water coming out of the Amazon River is probably being especially saturated with nutrients from agriculture that's Mm. happening all along the Amazon Basin. And so this is like – it's like fertilizer that is flooding into the ocean. And then, of course, that is feeding blooms of of this macroalgae. And then there are other factors they get into that are probably contributing, uh, such as like what the different temperatures are this year. It's the same thing you were talking about that – that climate change doesn't seem to be the cause of it in the sense of increasing ocean temperatures lead to, uh, to macroalgae blooms, because that doesn't appear to be the case, but downstream other effects of climate change are very likely contributing to this. It's just not the temperature of the water itself. Uh, another factor that they're talking about is access to the seed populations of, of seaweed. It's like how many patches of seaweed are there left over that survived the winter of the previous year and can act as a kind of uh, seed for the, the regrowth of the seaweed every new season?
3: Mm, yeah, because uh, it kind of brings back that uh, that point about the pneumaticists having uh, like a year's lifespan. So there's going to be a certain amount of crossover as well there. Yeah. from one year to the next. Um, I was impressed. Uh, one of the quotes that you pulled from uh, the from the Ed Young article just about uh, how many tons of seaweed we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the estimate, I think this would be referring to the year previous to when this article was written. So that it was published in 2019. So I think this would be referring to the summer of 2018 during June when the Sargassum Belt was uh, at, at its uh, most fruitful Uh, It was estimated to contain 22 million tons of seaweed. And then there's even a, a clarification later in the article that that estimate is probably low. Since the resolution of the satellite camera that's taking the infrared imagery to establish that number, it has like a minimum sort of pixel distance resolution. So it, it can only see patches that show up at a minimum resolution of something like a kilometer, I think it was. It could be oh, wow. wrong about that. Uh, I'm doing that just off memory. But I think that's what it was. And, uh, and so like patches that are smaller than that, of which there are probably plenty, they're not even really showing up on the imaging. So that's a lot of seaweed. That's yes. a lot of seaweed, folks. And <laughs> that's that, just a it, lot of biomass, is, yeah. And that's ending up on, um, a lot of it's ending up on the shores eventually. But one thing that is worth stressing again is that while researchers have probably identified some very good candidates for the explanations of of these uh, blooms and inundations of sargassum in the last decade or so, there's still some uncertainty. There's like stuff we don't know about what what could be leading to it and and what could be the uh the limiting and contributing factors anyway the 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 article by ed young is a really good read you should look it up
3: yeah absolutely i
1: recommend that one
3: now you know in in the past i think it's been brought up when we're dealing with invasive species or species that are out of balance one of the best things that you can do is develop an appetite for that species um, in human beings now I don't. I don't think anybody's making an argument that that could um, make a difference with the sargassum. But it is, again, worth noting that sargassum is something that humans can eat. Uh, We we mentioned that already. And I found a wonderful blog titled Eat the Weeds with Green Dean. Um, So his name is Dean, but he's Green Dean. Get it? And uh, the uh, the blog is titled Sargassum Sea Vegetable. And in this post, (laughs) Green Dean points to a few different culinary traditions that have recipes for sargassum, uh, though he points out that given the different species, species, basically, sargassum is going to, quote, vary in taste and texture, so there is no one way to cook your local species. Uh, he says that some amount of experimentation is going to be required, uh, but uh, basically he, he he goes through different cuisines in this post, points out that sometimes it's consumed fresh, other times it's cooked, say, in coconut milk or vinegar or lemon juice, other times it's smoke-dried or it's boiled, sometimes it's even sweetened and put into steam buns, sometimes it's cooked with fish, basically there are just numerous ways to approach it uh but it's it's worth checking out the link i, I recommend it it's at eat uh you'll find a post on the, the, the sargasm sea vegetable um i'm not sure i've ever had sargassum in a dish maybe i have and i just wasn't alert to it but now i, I feel like i really i really yeah. want to have it
1: i don't know if i have either i mean i've had a number of seaweed salads but i don't know what species were in them uh, yeah well i know some basic things i mean i know like kombu and kombu mm-hmm. of course is a a seaweed-based uh, food additive that is an amazing source of umami flavor. It's uh, it's it's almost like raw MSG. It's uh, it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, other than that, I don't know. I mean, I've had I've had like various seaweed salads at Japanese restaurants that have had different types of seaweeds. Some that looked kind of like orange brown, like like some species of sargassum do. So maybe I have. I don't know.
3: Huh? Yeah, I think I've I've only I, I know I've at least one time had like a sampler. Of seaweed salads from yeah. a Japanese restaurant, but in those cases, I think they were all still rather green. They didn't have mm. um, any kind of darker um, uh, coloration. So I don't know. I, I'm going to look for it now. Now it is on. It is. It is something I, I, I want to specifically try out, knowing that it is sargassum.
1: I just looked it up to make sure. I, I, I thought that kombu was not sargassum, and it, it is not. Kombu is a type of kelp.
3: Well, obviously, we'd le- love to hear from everyone out there about this topic in general, but but specifically on this question of the uh, the the cooking and the consumption. Of uh, sargassum, uh, if you've if you've you definitely know you've had it, and you've had it a particular way that was yummy or or uh, or or not yummy. Uh, let us know. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and likewise, just in you know in general, any feedback about uh, about the various organisms we've discussed here surrounding sargassum or uh, sargassum seaweed itself. Perhaps you're a snorkeler and have your t- you know two cents you want to throw in. Uh, write in. We'd like to hear from you. Uh, In the meantime, if you would like to hear other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And you know where to find that, just wherever you get podcasts. Um, subscribe if you can. Uh, rate us if the platform allows you to. Um, you know, give us, I guess, a good rating is what we're asking for. You know, that supposedly <laughs> helps us out. Uh, but uh, in general, we're just thankful if you're if you're listening to the show. And, uh, you know, write in. Let us know what you like about the show, what, what you would like to hear from us in the future, what other topics uh, you would like us to
1: consider. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I guess we're closing out here. Uh, so a uh, huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nick. Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us, as, as Rob just uh, asked there, to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.